It's a very stressful job, isn't it, John? I'll tell you, Mel. The jurors watching you and trying to make judgments about you. The adversary trying to upset what you're trying to do. The judge sort of making rulings on the fly, and you have to adjust all the time in real time to the rulings the judge makes. And the client is sitting there, you know, with his hands folded, just, you know, waiting for you to get the right result. And the first question to Elon was, you're Elon Musk. The world cares what you say. We didn't know what he was going to say. I mean, it was pause. And he said, well, so what made you decide, let me take my talents or services to Saudi Arabia? Any worry that the tech could one day replace all the thousands of hours it takes to become a law graduate and eventually practice law, will that be robotized, if that's a word? I mean, there are some significant issues there, Mo. All right. Uh, thank you so much for flying into Jeddah. I'd, I'd like to think it was for me, but even if it's not, that's fine as well. Uh, <laughs> I would fly in for you, Mohammed. You are very sweet. Thank you, John. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time is John Q. So John Q. John Q, the one with Denzel Washington, when he had to hijack or, yeah, he had to kind of hijack a hospital because they wouldn't operate on his son who needed a heart transplant. Um, and when Sada... Fetty sent, well, introduced me to you, and then I saw your name. I was like, uh, you know, the moment I meet him, I'm going to ask him if I can call him John Q on the, on the episode. I'll answer to that. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you. I've been called a lot of different things. Oh, God. Not thin skin. I'm going to go with, the, with, with John Q and nothing else outside of your name. Um, just to introduce uh, uh, Mr. John B. Quinn. Uh, he's an American lawyer and one of the founders, uh, one of the founding partners at Quinn Emanuel. I, I'm not going to be able to pronounce Urquhart is a Scottish name. Urquhart, Urquhart. And Sullivan. Quinn Emmanuel Urquhart and Sullivan, LLP. In 2011, John was listed as one of America's most influential lawyers by the National Law Journal. 2016, a poll by Bloomberg, big law business. Readers voted Quinn, the country's most famous practicing lawyer at a top U.S. firm. John attended Claremont McKenna College and Harvard Law School. Very impressive. Where he was the editor of the Harvard Law Review and a Knox Fellow. He graduated in 76 and joined the law firm of Craveth, Swain and Moore in New York City. Uh, I'm very intimidated by everything that I just said. Um, and Shouldn't be. Uh, uh, well, Shouldn't I mean, be. Harvard Law, you, you know, been practicing since 76. You crank out 500 lawyers a year, Mo. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of us. That's still a very, a very, a very small number. I've never had a lawyer. Uh, I don't think I had a lawyer on the show until now, and, and, and certainly not this one. This is the first? First, certainly one of your magnitude. Uh, so I'm, I need to really watch my words carefully. I'm Maybe honored. More thank than you. I ever <laughs> before. Uh, thank you again so much for coming for this. Uh, Pleasure. I, I really I really feel like I'm, I'm going to benefit from it on a personal level, and I hope the audience do as well. And and just to fire off uh, or, or start the conversation, I always, I never put any time to, to Google, but you know, from the movies I watch and the shows that I watch, I hear litigator, I hear attorney, I hear lawyer. Do they all do the same thing, or is each different in its own right? In the English, or in the American usage, a lawyer and attorney are kind of used interchangeably. Um, a litigator describes a particular type of lawyer. A litigator is someone who deals with disputes. Which is you. Lawsuits, that's what we do. So arbitration, disputes, in court, uh, problems with the government. Uh, other lawyers are generally referred to often as transactional lawyers. So if you need to raise capital and you need uh, to float a 
an issuance on the market or you want to do an M&A transaction, you'll get lawyers to document that. Those are sort of transactional lawyers. And the world is kind of in big law, big law firms globally. The world is mostly divided between transactional lawyers and litigators, but they all answer to attorneys or lawyers. And what on earth is a barrister? You know, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> it's a British term, right? It is a British. So the Brits uh, have a different, uh, and this is true in other Commonwealth heritage countries like Australia, Singapore, there's a lot of them, where uh, the law practice and litigation world is divided between solicitors and barristers. And barristers are the litigators who actually go to court and argue the case to the court. They show up in court. That's their specialty. They're great oral advocates, and they specialize in that, and they're trained to do that, where solicitors are the litigators who seemingly do everything else. They prepare the case. They work hand-in-hand with the barristers to prepare the case and to try the case. Some solicitors get what they call rights of audience. Uh, I've learned this term from you know, dealing with UK lawyers, so they can go to court as well and they can argue. But this is a, a division of the practice which is unknown in the US. But, and I'm still learning what the different roles are of barristers and solicitors. That is, um, that is something. Um, have you ever had to deal with uh, a, a jury and that whole uh, sure. environment of trying to convince 12 people? That's sure, a, yeah. sure. That's enshrined in the 17th, Seventh Amendment to the United States Constitution that 18th century document, trial by jury, trial by jury. is preserved. And uh, so the question is what cases are heard by juries? And uh, criminal cases, all criminal cases are heard by juries. But everything else, if it was triable to a jury under English law in the 18th century, we still present those cases to juries, no matter how complex it is. So like patent disputes, patent litigation, the most complicated technology cases in the US, they are tried to juries. So that presents some some obvious challenges. So we inherited the system from the British. It's enshrined in the Constitution. The British have basically uh, you know, abolished jury trials in everything except for criminal cases. That's still the voice of the community. They're going to decide whether somebody is infringed, infringed the social norms and whether they, they should be punished as criminals. And I think also defamation cases, kind of unusually, because they involve rep- reputation. And so maybe the voice of the, of the jury isn't considered important there. But the Brits don't uh, use juries for anything else. It's only us. We still have juries. So t- two questions. Who decides whether something goes to jury or to have the judge decide? Second question is, doesn't a jury diminish the power of a judge? I mean, interesting question. Um, I mean, basically the default position, as I said, in the Constitution, there's a right to a jury trial, uh, period. Now, the parties can agree to waive a jury trial. If you and I enter into a contract, we can have a provision in that contract that says in the event of a dispute between us, it's going to be decided by a court or for that matter, an arbitrator. We'll do it outside the judicial system. We'll have a hire a third party arbitrator to decide it. So parties can, by, by contract, can agree to waive a jury. That You can waive a jury before trial, even if you don't have it in the contract. But the default position is the cases are going to be tried to juries. Does the presence of a jury diminish the power of the judge? I mean, basically, the, in, in a trial where you have a jury, the judge decides what the law is. 
and makes rulings on the evidence as it comes in during the course of the trial. I'm seeing you, I'm sure you've seen lots of yeah. movies where there are trials and there'll be an objection, you know, the hearsay or whatever to the testimony that's coming in. The judge rules on those. We'd say that's like in baseball. He's calling balls and strikes. He's controlling the courtroom. That's the role of the judge. And at the end of the trial, he will instruct the jury on what the law is. Like, this is a claim for breach of contract. The elements of a claim for breach of contract, there must be an offer, there must be an acceptance, there must be consideration, there must be a breach. He will tell the jurors, this is what the law is. And that the plaintiff has the burden of proof. And it's up to you, the jurors, to decide whether or not that case has been proven by a so-called preponderance of the evidence, which is a lower standard than the criminal standard, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. Preponderance of the evidence just means the scale tips at all, like 50 plus percent. So, and then it's left to the jury to decide, having been instructed on the law, it's up to the jury to decide whether the burden has been met or not. And they return a verdict. There's been a breach of contract, yes or no. If there has been a breach of contract, has there been damage? What are the amounts of the damages? And they return that verdict. So it's kind of an interesting relationship. The judge controls the proceedings, controls the law. That's the judge's province. But the ultimate decision maker is the jury. Do they vote at the end of it or do they collectively come up with, excuse the novice question. No, it's, it's absolutely fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, have you seen the, the famous uh, uh, Henry Fonda movie? Uh, what is it? 12, I forget what it's called. Angry Men? No, no, I'm blanking on the name of the, the movie. It's embarrassing that I can't remember it, but it's about what happens in the jury room. I mean, it's dramatized, obviously. They're instructed on the law. Then the jurors are told to go into a room, the jury room, and confer and deliberate and discuss amongst themselves the evidence. And, you know, in my experiences, these people who have, you know, because of their automobile license numbers or their voter records or their address, they've been pulled out of their ordinary lives and re- told you must show up for jury duty. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go, you have to do it. Uh, they don't want to be there day one, but if they get selected to be on the jury, you start to see, they take it extremely seriously. Like the second day, they'll show up and they'll dress better. You know, you'll see it. They're taking it super seriously. And my experience is the jurors want to get to the right result. And so they will deliberate. The deliberations are secret. They can't have any communication with anyone. Uh, It's not necessarily, I mean, we did a case recently where the jury was out, you know, for Elon Musk. We can talk about that case. The jury was out for just like two hours and came back with a verdict. Sometimes it'll take a few days. And they come back and they deliberate until they reach a result. What if not everyone in the group agrees with the the, the narrative that they want to go back with? Um, well, I mean, they're given a verdict form and there isn't really a narrative. They're basically checking boxes. So it's not a voting system. It is a voting. They have to reach agreement. And it's different. Like in a lot of, in some jurisdictions, it has to be unanimous. Um in federal court, it has to be unanimous. We have two systems, a federal court system and then a state court system. There's 50 states. They each have their own systems, a little bit different rules. In California, it takes only nine. So if you get nine votes, that's the verdict. Oh, there can be three dissenters, okay? Um, most of the time, and in criminal cases, it has to be unanimous. And basically, they need to be in there and discuss this until they reach an agreement. Sometimes they're just absolutely... They can't get past it. They can't reach an agreement, and they'll tell the judge. They'll send a message out. The judge will have them come in in the jury box, and they'll tell them, we're just at loggerheads. We Mm -hmm. can't reach an agreement. 
The system at that point has a lot invested in concluding this trial. They won't, you don't want to have a do-over. If, this, if the jury can't reach an agreement, you're facing starting all over again and doing a new trial. And that's a huge cost to the system. The case is monopolized, the courtroom and the judge and the court's resources for the time of that trial. So the judge will give them kind of a stern ad- admonishment, like you shouldn't uh, you know, unreasonably hold to your views. You should certainly make sure to listen to the other jurors. You should do your very best effort to reach an agreement. Sometimes they can't. It's mm-hmm. kind of rare, uh, but sometimes they can't. And then it's called a mistrial, and there's a right to start all over again. It's a very stressful job, isn't it, John? I'll tell you, Mo. Uh, in some ways, law practice, um, in some ways, it's a, dis- it's a dumb business in the sense that uh, in our country, we're mostly bringing people with legal talent together with people with legal problems and charging by the hour for our time. It's a pro- profitable venture for sure. Can be. Can be. It depends. But that's, that's sort of the general outlines of the business. Compare that to you know, high-tech businesses and so many other businesses where you're making huge investments that can go out you know, years into the future before you, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Those are really, really complex businesses. But as, as simple as the business is, as I just described, I think trying a case to a jury is one of the most difficult things a human being can do. You're, this is all happening in real time. You have jurors in a jury box who have nothing better to do than watch everything that you're doing, scrutinize everything that you're doing, and they're making judgments. They're trying to figure out who is telling them the truth. They suspect that one of the t- lawyers is, is not being truthful. And they're trying to figure out which one it is. You have an an adversary whose sole job all the time is to make you look bad, to object to the questions that you've asked, to try to keep out the evidence that you want to get in. You have a judge up there on a dais who's calling balls and strikes. Now, he's a human being, so not always consistently. He can interrupt, you know, you go in with a plan, and the next thing you know, you know, your plan is turned upside down because of something that's happened. Uh, because of some ruling, you have to go to plan B or plan C. And then you have a client whose life, whose property, whose business uh, is all on the line. I mean, they're, they've engaged you to handle their, one of the most important matters they have going on in their life. And it's all live action. This is all happening at once. The jurors watching you and trying to make judgments about you. The adversary trying to upset what you're trying to do. The judge sort of making rulings on the fly and you have to adjust all the time in real time to the rulings the judge makes and the client is sitting there you know with his hands folded just you know waiting for you to get the right result can i throw a fifth in sure the stand a witness the witness absolutely the witness you have somebody up there who you are trying to extract information from there is kind of arcane rules about the kinds of questions you can ask and how you can form the questions and uh, the witness has to, you can't tell with the witness what to say, obviously. Mm. So in real time, you've got to extract this information from the witness in, in you know, using questions which, and formulating questions which, if it's a, your witness, they can't be so-called leading questions that you know, suggest the answer. Uh, and the witness is going to be super nervous. The witness has to perform too, try to do the tell their story or what they know the best way they know how to do it. And they're nervous. Under oath. Oh, yeah. And it's under oath. So there's all these moving pieces, and it is extremely difficult. Sleepless nights, I'm sure. 
You got to sleep. That's the other you thing. Because these <laughs> things go on day after day. So yeah, it's stressful, but you better sleep because you got to get up and start, do it again the next day. And be sharp. Sharper yeah. than the guy you're going against. Yeah. Is there a case that, from all the cases that you've done, forgive the, the broad question, is, is there one that stayed with you until today, one that you really remember more than any others for whatever reason that you can recall? Well, one is the first case I ever tried to a jury. Uh, I had never done it. I had never seen it done. Okay. I was a very young lawyer, and I was scared beyond belief. Uh, is this around 1976? Uh, no, no. Uh, it was much later. And I actually started out as a, deal, as a transactional lawyer, so it wasn't a few years into my career where I realized I wasn't cut out to do that. I was really cut out to do what I do now. But my first jury trial was just kind of a super scary, intimidating uh, experience. And it was a three-month trial in San Diego. Um, and I learned so much in the course of it. Mm -hmm. And somehow, miraculously, we ended up winning that case. But I can tell you everything about that case. It was an employment case. You know, It wasn't huge stakes, necessarily. Um, it was a discrimination case, race discrimination. The two plaintiffs, there were two of them. They were both African-Americans. They were both older people. They had lost their jobs. They alleged that the employment action, the, the termination, was as a result of their race and their age. And I represented the defendant in that case. So I remember that so well uh, because it was my first one. Um, and you won it, huh? We did win it. Absolutely. We did win it. Uh, was it against all odds? Were, were, were the majority of people thinking that you wouldn't? A lot of people thought we wouldn't win the case. I could see why this one. Some, some of the evidence was, uh, for my client, was not good uh, for our client. Um, but then, you know, jump forward years later, I mean, we've represented Google for many years. And Google, of course, created the Android operating system. And there was a series of cases that Apple brought against the... Android-powered, you know, handset uh, phone manufacturers alleging, basically, uh, that the Android system infringed intellectual property rights uh, of, uh, of Apple. And so they sued, you know, like HTC, which was a Taiwanese phone maker. Yes. They sued uh, Motorola, uh, and they sued Samsung, which was a client of ours. And we, we defended these cases. As I'd say it was really a proxy war. I mean, Apple didn't have the guts to sue Google. So they sued the handset manufacturers that were using the Android system. And that I really got exposure to Samsung and uh, the Korean business world uh, and Korean technology and Korean, um, you know, the, the amazing way of they do business there, this little country of 50 million people hanging on the end of a peninsula and has global market-leading uh, businesses like Hyundai and Samsung and, um, you know, SK, Hynix and the like, and came to enormously respect them. But this, I mean, it was a, a we tried a series of cases, but it was a war between Apple and Samsung. Uh, Is there a language barrier there? You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Korea is very U.S.-facing, uh, the marketplace there. And uh, I think it's part of the heritage of, you know, the Korean War uh, and all the America. The, the, there's a very close relationship between Korea and the U.S. A lot of Korean-Americans. And there's a lot of Korean-Americans. Especially in California. Yes. I mean, there's more Koreans in L.A. than any place in the world outside of Korea. Wow. You know, Koreatown. You have to come oh, visit sometime. There you go. 
it's a fun I've, it's a fun place to go in the evening I've, I've been in Koreatown yeah okay I've been to California I've been to San Diego funnily enough from right. the age of three we had a family home in La Jolla okay so I'm pretty nice there it's, it's gorgeous it's it's uh, arguably my favorite place in the world um but Koreatown I'll have to take you up on it I haven't haven't ventured I haven't ventured there so like with the lawyers of Samsung be proficient in English so that they can defend the company if so they're the they're the in-house lawyers that's yeah. their job they work for the company they don't do litigation so they'll retain uh in this case the US lawyers I mean obviously Samsung is a global company it has issues it'll have legal issues in countries all over the world and they have to retain local lawyers to handle those mm-hmm. and so we were retained by in-house lawyers at Samsung and we worked together very much as a team in preparing these cases and trying these cases against Apple. And there really isn't a language barrier because so many of the lawyers, they'll either be Korean Americans who, you know, maybe they grew up in the U.S. or as children, their parents immigrated to the U.S. and then they've come back. Uh, Or they will be Korean lawyers who have gone to get an LLM, you know, a master's degree in law in the U.S. That's a very common pattern. So usually we are working with in-house lawyers who often have a U.S. legal de- uh, law degree and English and fluent English speakers. Yeah, I, I can believe Samsung are going to be well prepared to have their legal team or legal floor all be proficient in English in the event. Yeah. In the event. It's, of- interestingly, it's, it's tougher in uh, Japan. I mean, English isn't as widely spoken or at least spoken as fluently. So I experienced. Yeah, so I'm hearing. I'm going in two months and, and I told, and I was told, you know, just brace yourself that the English isn't as prominent as you might think. It's not Hong Kong. Um, they study it, but they, um, I think it's it's kind of book learning of, of English a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the younger people are different. Professionals are different. But it's it's really not like uh, Korea, Korea, where English is so widely spoken. Yeah, yeah. And they've done a lot in this space of entertainment and soft power. Uh, one of my favorite shows in recent memory is Squid Games. Really? Yeah, it's... it's I couldn't watch that. It, it, it's, it's a bit too gory, bloody, whatever you want to call it. But I didn't I, I didn't know anything much about the Korean cinema and production companies. But when they had the whole world talking about it, I heard LeBron James uh, talking about Squid Games. And then I went on to find out that it was a Korean show dubbed in English and it's making the rounds, uh, you know, with some mm-hmm. of the most famous people in the world. I said that that is a perfect example of how movie making and production can be a source of soft power. No question. Uh, and there have been some wonderful Korean, Korean movies. Uh, Parasite, of course, Parasite, won, yeah. won Best Picture. Um, and, then, good. Uh, and then there was one I think it was called Reasons to Leave. And then there's one that's re- out right now. And I'm just blanking on the name. It's about these two... Korean kids, a boy and a girl who get separated at the age of 12, and then uh, they ended up seeing each other 12 years later, and then 12 years later again. Somebody, when you're listening, many of your listeners will know this movie, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be nominated for an Academy Award. It just came out? Yeah. Yeah, just very, No, you know, you can see it now. It might be on Netflix or... Old boy. Past Lives? Past Lives. That's the title of it. Past Lives. And then the one, there was one two years ago called Reason to Leave. Okay. So, I mean, the Korean soft power, entertainment, media, music, uh, it, it is, as you say, it's amazing. It's world-class. Okay, past lives, yeah, 2003. 
We got to watch it. Um, that's definitely on my list. My God, it's not. It's not the best movie of the last ten years. It's a Japanese movie. It's called Drive My Car. Drive My Car. You got to watch it, Mo. So just to tell you, this is a movie that in the Oscars, you know, I, I've been affiliated with the Academy Award to, uh, for many, many years. It won the award for best foreign language film, but it was nominated for best picture overall. So Japanese movie nominated for best picture overall. It was nominated in the Academy Oscars? Yes. And it won best foreign language, but it was one of the nominated films for best film overall. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's an astonishing movie. Definitely in my notes. Thank you so much. Keep it coming as soon as any movies come to mind. Um, send them my way. I'm, 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 I'm always on the hunt for not wasting any time on a bad movie. We saw Night Swim the other day and what a waste of money that was. Demons and, 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 and water should never mix. Leave the sharks for the water. They right. how integrated a Night Swim with demons and I just did not buy into that at all. Right. Um, how much has the industry changed since you started? And, and today, you know, with the integration of tech and media and specifically social media, easier today, are you having more fun now or when you started off your career? Well, I'm having, uh, I'm having more fun, but not necessarily because of changes, uh, in law practice and the, on the law industry. I mean, so, so I started before the internet. I mean, I started when. You know, you were viewing documents and discovery and disclosure where parties in litigation, they, you have to disclose information, documents to the other side. We're dealing with paper, paper documents, and you had to have eyes on documents, and you had whole teams of people who were reviewing documents and trying to find things that are relevant or damaging. Um, and that's all, you know, it's now at the point, you know, with some of the... Um, AI available now, you can do a lot of that without human eyeballs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you still need to have checks uh, and quality control. But really, the volume of data to be dealt with is the biggest single change. Email, uh, texts of all kinds. You know, in the US legal system, uh, and the Brits too, but especially in the US, we're famous for this sort of pretrial discovery where you have all cards on the table. Like, I can ask, say, I want to. You know, we need to inspect your phone. To see, we want everything off your phone addressing any of the following issues. Uh, and, of course, the best stuff is always in the emails. You know, not the formal documents, yeah. the letters that go to the other side or counterparties. The best stuff is always in the emails and the text. Yeah, that, that's, where sh that's where stuff rises and is discovered. Now, that's where people are really handed. They th they'll text things that they think, nobody's ever going to see this. Yeah. Uh, is that how, like in the Live Golf case, you know, we got... Texas, some, I won't name names, but you can imagine who they are, mm -hmm. major golfers and golfers talking to each other about live golf and the PGA tour in the future, uh, unfiltered comments, uh, where before lawyers were involved, you can imagine. Any worry that the tech could one day replace all the thousands of hours it takes to become a law graduate and eventually practice law, will that be robotized if that's a word? I mean, there's some... Significant issues there, Mo. Um, as lawyers, we're basically wordsmiths. We string words together. Large language models string words together, and they're getting better and better at it, the generative AI. So, it, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, we've known for 
several years now. I mean, the adoption is going to be somewhat slow. We've known for several years now that uh, AI programs can read diagnostic imaging, NMRI scans, x-rays better than radiologists can, right? We know that. Yes. We're still graduating radiologists. When the internet uh, became a thing, it was 10 years before it was widely adopted. So I think notwithstanding all that we're reading about AI and how it's going to change things, it's not going to be changed overnight. There'll be particular applications. And in the legal world, you know, we're gradually starting to use this. Um, you know, it can speed some things up. Ultimately, I think uh, law firms will change in terms of their structure. Basically, law firms are kind of pyramids now. At the top, you have senior partners, then partners, and then you have associates and the very junior associates is kind of a pyramid. And I think ultimately that's kind of the pyramid's going to kind of narrow because we'll have eventually less need for so many junior lawyers. There's a lot of things that technology can do, but we'll need different kinds of lawyers. We'll need lawyers who are adept with the technology and uh, being able to optimize, uh, you know, prompts and being able to get the information um, in the best way possible. So I think it's going to, it'll change the structure of law firms, it may eliminate certain types of jobs, will create other kinds of jobs. Reduce overhead, probably one of the things that is on the Yeah, front. maybe, maybe. But, you know, look, for what I do, I think this, I think the AI is more of a threat to transactional lawyers, what we're talking about, the lawyers that write agreements, contracts, M&A transactions and the like. Chat GPT can, can solve that for you. Yeah. Well, at least the first draft at this point. Yes, but... Yeah. For advocates, I don't think anytime soon, some AI is going to be making arguments to a court. Yeah, I don't think judges are going to be replaced by AI so that AI is making the decisions. You still I, don't, I don't think human beings are going to be comfortable with that. You still need a human being in that position. You need a human being ultimately making decisions, you know, even though human beings are flawed. You know, there's studies that show that, uh, there was a study that showed judges in Germany uh, in criminal cases uh, issue uh, longer sentences for the same offense after lunch than before lunch. They also, the Monday after their home soccer team loses, the sentences on average is longer. So, human beings aren't perfect, but none of us, I think, are going to really be comfortable turning over to an AI program decisions about people's lives and how long somebody's going to spend in jail. We need a human being there making a judgment, looking the defendant in the eye and making their best judgment. Although you do hear some crazy stories going through, like someone spilling boiling hot coffee from McDonald's and then him winning the case. Now they have caution hot coffee on your McDonald's cups. Mo, let's talk about that famous case. I know something about that. It's a real case, right? It's a real case. Okay, tell me. McDonald's sold, heated its coffee, coffee to a super hot level. This was a known phenomenon. I mean, you can understand. You buy a cup of coffee, you get out in the car, you want it to still be warm. Of course. And you want it to be as warm as long as possible. So, you know, they were doing what a lot of customers appreciated. They had a history, and I can't remember the number, but it was a substantial number of cases where people were burned by spilt coffee because of this practice. So known risk to McDonald's. McDonald's knowing that some number of people are going to be badly burnt by this practice of selling superheated coffee continued to do it. They did that. Some woman 
bought this coffee. I think it was an older woman, bought the coffee. She went out in the car, started to drive. She put the coffee cup between her legs so she could have both hands on the steering wheel. The coffee spilled and burnt her badly. There was a very large, the jury gave a very large award. It was a ridiculous award. I can't remember what it was. I mean, there was compensatory damages and then punitive damages. It might have been in the tens of millions of dollars. But the plaintiff's lawyers, the lawyers who represented that woman, were able to present to the jury the record of this history of super McDonald's knowing that its superheated coffee was burning people. The jury thought McDonald's should be punished for that. Now, so there was a big jury award. That made the news. I mean, you know about it. This is probably 15, 20 years ago. What people don't know is that award was set aside. It was too much money. You know, the, the, the jury, the judge has the ability to do that. The judge can say, well, well, this jury just didn't get it right. That was too much. Judge can reduce the award. A court of appeals can reduce the award. You know, I actually think that that was a, a defensible result. I mean, what do you think? I mean, if there's a company that's selling something that's known to be potentially dangerous, and people are getting hurt by it, should they be held to account for that? They should have adjusted the temperature of their There you go. Or and, they, and they did that. So, yeah. After that case, they did that. Yeah. yeah. Now, now that I hear the backstory, it kind of, it kind of makes sense. Uh, someone who has been in the news uh, uh, recently, um, feels like maybe for the past two years or so from a legal perspective, is, is Donald Trump. Only more than two years, I think. More than two years. When they raided his house in, in, in Key Largo, was yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I just, I'm just being facetious. Oh, you Trump's been in the news for a long time. Probably, yeah. You were talking the, about the legal. Problem. The legal, yeah, the legal element of it. Um, how does someone go from president to having his home raided? Well, I don't, I don't remember the details about how the government realized he had classified documents in his home. That's what it was down in Florida. That was the issue. And, you know, you're not supposed to have classified documents, especially after you're president, in your home. So that's. I mean, Mo, he's actually facing four criminal cases. He's facing one in New York. He's facing one in Washington, D.C. He's facing one in Georgia. He's facing one in Florida with different allegations in each case. And um, I don't see how he, I don't think he's going to run the table. He is going to be convicted in one of these cases. The, the, The probability that he could win every single one of those, I think, is very, very low. They're different cases. And I think he has a good chance, uh, you know, in the New York case. The New York case is kind of a silly case. The, the theory of that case is he paid off Stormy Daniels. He paid her off uh, to enhance her, to preserve his candidacy for president. And, and who is she in this? Stormy Daniels is this woman who he paid off to keep silent about the fact that they had had sex. That was her, that's her name. It's a, I don't think it's her real name. Yeah, it's, it's a, a numda something. Um, so he paid her off not to talk about that. He's been charged criminally, um, which is a, which is a felony. So, so sorry, yeah, it's a felony. Sorry. He's been charged with a campaign finance violation for doing that, not because he used campaign money to pay her off, but get this, he paid her off in order to preserve his candidacy because if people had knew about this episode with Stormy Daniels, they wouldn't vote for him. And because it was to preserve his candidacy, it should have been reported to as a campaign expenditure. That's the theory of the case. I think it's kind of a silly theory, 
and I think he's likely to win that case, but that's a theory of that case. The Washington, D.C. case is basically that he um, conspired to interfere with official proceedings relating to the election. Um, I think that's a very, very dangerous case for him. Not, you know, not so much because of the allegations, but it's in Washington, D.C., which is 95% Democratic, and a judge who seems to be hostile to his case. They, want, they wanted to set that trial months into the future. She set the case for trial in March this year, the month after next. I think it's set for trial for Mar on March 4. Uh, there's an appeal pending now about whether he has uh, immunity and can't be prosecuted, but it sounds like that appeal isn't going well for him. I think that's a dangerous case for him. Maybe a 70% chance he loses that case. The Florida case, classified documents in the home, he can probably win because uh, it's a criminal case, and in a criminal, uh, for a criminal charge, the prosecutor must prove what's called the Latin term mens rea, that it was done intentionally with criminal intent. And so a defense to that is good faith. I, Donald Trump, had a good faith basis to think I could have these classified documents in my own. I may have been wrong, but I have a good faith basis. That would be a defense to the criminal charges. There is a case his lawyers are relying on called the Clinton Sock Drawer Case. It's a case involving some, some I can't remember, it's tapes or whatever it was, something that Clinton got while he was president. That's a terminology today. That's like a... that, that. That's it's the shorthand name for the case. Okay, I, so I'm just telling you they got the Clinton sock drawer. Yeah, yeah. It was there was a sock drawer and whatever this was, I can't remember what it was. He had got and whenever whatever you get as president is supposed to be property of the government. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't. You know, it's not supposed to be your personal property. And in that case, there's a question about whether whatever this object was or objects, I can't remember what it was, whether he had converted it to his own personal property by taking it home and putting it in the sock drawer. And the judge, in the opinion, gave some credence to the idea that, well, maybe he had a good faith basis. So uh, Trump's lawyers are now citing that precedent and saying, well, he had a good faith basis. The problem with the Florida case is the cover-up. He ordered the destruction of some videos. That's a crime in itself. That's called obstruction of justice. It's the situation always. The cover-up is worse than the crime. The, yeah. So, you know, but for that cover-up, you know, he could probably win the Florida case. It may be tricky for him. The Georgia case, is it going to be a circus? There are 17 defendants. There are, this is the one where go out and find me some more votes. Find me some more electors. The allegation is he tried to interfere with the election process. And three or four of the defendants have pled guilty and are presumably cooperating with the prosecutor. They may testify against him. So... So New York case, probably, I'm going to say 80% chance he wins that. Washington, no. 70% plus he loses. Georgia, 70%, 60% plus he loses. Florida, you know, maybe 60% he wins, 70%. But if you run the odds, I mean, you don't have to go to Las Vegas to run the probabilities. Can he really run the table and win all four? I think the odds are against it. So he's probably going to be a convicted felon. Does blue and red states come into play here? Not really. Um, but what does come into play is the composition of the uh, local population, who they are, and because those are the people from whom the jury is drawn. So your, gotcha. your jury in Washington, D.C. 
it's going to be very different than your jury in Florida. And as I said, the Washington, D.C. jury, 95% Democratic. He's not popular. Florida is his people, Republican-ish. Uh, it should be, yeah. I mean, kind of a mixed state. Uh, I don't know the actual composition of the, you know, in the particular county or the, where the jurors are drawn from. That's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. If you're handicapping these things, those are the sort of factors that you look at. We can, I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting to talk about is, is there's been a ruling in Colorado that he cannot be on the ballot. Wow. You've read about this. No. Okay. Stay with me now, Mo. I'm with you. <laughs> Stay with me. We had a civil war in the United States, as you know, back in the 1860s. And we had all these southern states that seceded from the Union. And ultimately, the war was over. The Union was preserved. Uh, in, the, in the wake of that, there was an amendment to the United States Constitution, the 14th Amendment. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says, anyone who had taken an oath of office to uphold the Constitution and then later engaged in an insurrection against the United States is not eligible for federal office. You, you with me? I, I am. <laughs> so there was a case brought in Colorado challenging whether Trump could be, on the, could be the Republican nominee and be on the ballot in Colorado. And in the trial court, it was a trial, not to a jury, but to a trial, sometimes certain types of things you tried only to a judge, not to the jury. The judge found there was an insurrection, April 6th. She says that met the definition of an insurrection. She said that Trump did engage in the insurrection, but she said the office of the president is not one of those federal offices for which you would be disqualified if you engage in an insurrection uh, against the government. And just for those who don't know, what on earth an insurrection is a violent uprising against the authority or government, so basically like a coup. Well, uh, an attempt, an Re attempted Re coup, okay, attempt revolution. Yeah. I mean, she found that this insurrection, what happened on you know January 6th, that that was an insurrection. I mean, I, to me, that's debatable. I mean, to me, what happened there was some hoodlums got in the Capitol. Uh, to my mind, that doesn't meet the definition, just personal opinion of an insurrection. But this judge found there was an insurrection and Trump engaged in the insurrection. Again, to my mind, that's debatable because what did he do? You know, he basically what he's accused mostly of doing is doing nothing. He didn't like tweet, Proud Boys, you know, stop it. You yeah. know, um, but they were his people. They were his people. Right. But I mean, if he's sitting there in the White House in the Oval Office with his hands folded, is he engaging in an insurrection? I don't know. I'm just saying I think it's not to the naked eye. <laughs> I think it's, i just saying, I think it's debatable. Yeah. So, but she oddly found that the presidency is not one of the federal offices from which you'd be disqualified if you engage in an insurrection. Mm -hmm. That was appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court. Every state has their own Supreme Court. The Colorado Supreme Court reversed and said, no, the presidency is covered. If he engaged in an insurrection, uh, you know, he's disqualified from the ballot. So that's where matters now stand. It's appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court will definitely take that case, and they'll decide it on an accelerated basis. There have been similar challenges in other states. The state of Maine, there, uh, the, whoever runs elections there, it's a different procedure than in Colorado, has ruled he engaged in an insurrection and he's not eligible to be on the ballot. There was a similar challenge in Michigan. Trump won there. California, is, interestingly, has decided we're not going to contest this. He can be on the ballot. 
But this is a this is a live issue right now, and it'll be decided by the United States Supreme Court whether he is disqualified because of this amendment to the Constitution that was adopted after the American Civil War. It's a few things on his plate this year. It looks like he's got a lot of things. He's got, and then not to mention this uh, New York State Court proceeding where he's alleged to have kept basically uh, inaccurate records and inflated the value of his properties. You know, he testified in that. His daughter Ivanka testified in that. Um, and, you know, just reading what I, you know, from the newspapers, the accounts I've read, that hasn't gone very well for him. That's a civil action, not a criminal action. The outcome of that could be, you know, a fine or, uh, you know, the, the government, the state, New York state government has asked for over $300 million, as I understand it. Oh, my goodness. So he does have a lot going on. Wow. And, and he's still wanting to run for president in, in a year? Seemingly so. I mean, he is running. There's no question about He's that. He's running. Okay. I mean, I think, you know, I'm not a huge Trump fan personally. Um, you know, I think he has the potential to be, uh, you know, in the first, his first term, he said a lot of crazy things. He didn't do many crazy things. You know, he, you know, he, he was more of a talker. I'm really concerned that if he gets elected again, right now he's got such a chip on his shoulder. He feels like he's been hard done by the world. I, I'm just afraid the gloves will be off and I don't, you know, I'm a little concerned about what he might do if he's, if he's elected again. Um, something that's in the news like crazy is the Epstein case that is blowing up. Is that something that was discovered on email and text? How did it become something that just, you know, blew up in front of our eyes? Well, I mean, the history is, um, you know, he was prosecuted in Florida um, and he pled guilty when there was a, a negotiated plea. Um, and then he, uh, I really think it was women victims yeah. uh, bringing it to uh, his ongoing continuing behavior uh, to the attention of authorities and, and lawyers who are bringing claims on their behalf. I mean, it's not something I've, I've followed in detail, but I, I, I think that's the background to it. Um, and, and, you know, from what I can see is that there are probably so many people in the middle who have covered up information that, to, you know, to protect their people. And now you just hear of these mainstream names being um, affiliated with this case and, 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 and talk about a PR nightmare for some of the names who I do not want to mention. But... Um, yeah, it, it really has caught in the eyes of, of, of many people. You don't want to have your name mentioned in the same sentence no. with Jeffrey Epstein. No. You know? <laughs> and so I think there's, I'm, I know there's a lot of people who, um, there's some kind of guilt by association uh, out there, which is you know unfounded and, and very unfortunate. And in addition to, I'm sure, a lot of guilty people. Uh, switching gears, you have done some work for or with Elon Musk. Um, he has, my goodness, it's almost like whenever he takes over a project, he doesn't know how to fail. Um, what's it like representing him in some capacity? You know, he's a, a fascinating individual. Uh, he's very much an independent thinker. He's very much, uh, believes in his own counsel in his own, um, instincts. He's a big believer in it and they're, uh, generally very, very good. Uh, um, but he can, uh, you know, he, he, he's somebody who will listen 
and you know we've had cases where we've represented him in trials and he's taken the stand and testified and done very very well what was it that he was on on trial for well there've been a couple of cases that we've we've tried for him i mean one was do you remember there were some boys lost in a cave in thailand for a while do you remember that a few Vague. years ago? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so Elon, who at the time had, I think, had four sons, was very touched by this predicament of these boys in this cave. And so he pulled some SpaceX engineers off their jobs and had them design, working overtime, come up with like a little submarine that you could put a child in it um, with air and whatever and, you know, pull them out of the cave and was he wanted to help and he sent this over to Thailand and there was a British cave diver uh, who gave an interview um, to the press and said that you know this is a publicity stunt and Elon should take the submarine and shove it where the sun doesn't shine. Elon in response tweeted that I assure you this guy's a pedo guy and similar kinds of remarks about this British cave diver. Yeah. So the cave diver, the Brit, sued him in Los Angeles for defamation. And he testified in that case. Uh, and he took the stand. He was called by the other side, by the plaintiff, as the first witness in the case. You can do that. You can call your adversary and put him right on the stand mm -hmm. and start to cross-examine him. They called Elon. And the first question, this is a defamation case, right? So question is, do people believe you know, how much damage has been done by this comment? Who's the speaker? These are key issues. And the first question to Elon was, you're Elon Musk. The world cares what you say. We didn't know what he was going to say. I mean, it was pause. And he said, well, you know, I don't really know. I don't I know. I've been talking about fossil fuels for a long time now, and then the need to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels and to have electric automobiles. And the change doesn't seem to be happening fast enough. It doesn't seem like people are listening. So no, I'm not sure at all that people care what I have to say. I mean, it's just brilliant. And then the other case, this is interesting because it has a Saudi angle. You may recall he tweeted, I'm interested in taking Tesla private at $420 a share, funding secured, funding secured. Remember that? Yeah. And supposedly it came out that the funding he supposedly was from the PIF. Hmm. And there were texts between uh, Elon and his excellency, Yasser al-Ramayan. Hmm. Uh, and it was clear from the text that he didn't have funding. And so there was a securities fraud case, class action brought against Elon for making a false statement that affected the market. They claimed that they, people, investors lost money because of this false statement. And at the beginning of the trial, there was discovery, you know, parties exchange evidence, that's our system. The judge instructed the jury right at the beginning, I instruct you that Mr. Musk's tweet was false. He did not have funding and he knew he did not have funding. Now proceed, call your first witness. The judge can do that. I mean, if the, if the evidence is undisputed on a subject, uh, there's no question for the jury, and the judge can take an issue away from the jury, tell them, I've already decided this part of the case. You don't have to decide. Mm -hmm. The judge, the undisputed evidence, looking at the text, 
uh, there was no funding. We tried the case. We won the case. And we should have won the case because it's a fraud claim. And the elements of fraud are not only that there's a false statement, but it must be a material false statement. It can't be about something that's of no consequence. And our argument to the jury was that if the uh, wealthiest man in the world and Tesla's largest shareholder says that he wants to take Tesla private, the marketplace doesn't care whether or not funding is secured. The market will react to such a statement by the richest guy in the world. It was literally immaterial whether he had funding. The jury got it. They were only out two hours and they returned a defense verdict. And he lost that. Oh, he won that. He won that. It was a defense verdict. Oh, so he didn't get into trouble for that tweet? No. They sued him for fraud. And yes, it, the judge said it was a false statement, but it wasn't material. It didn't matter. Yeah. Because, as I said, the market would have reacted whether yeah. funding was secured or not. Or not. Yes. So he won. That makes sense, actually. When, actually, when you, it does. Yeah, it, does. <laughs> it doesn't matter. What's your take on how PIF have entered the sporting world and quite aggressively? And I was in, I mean, there was a, a lawsuit. Uh, we had the privilege of representing uh, Live Golf versus the PGA Tour in an antitrust unfair competition case. Uh, so I have some insight as a result of that case into uh, Live Golf. I'm really not uh, knowledgeable to speak about other PIF sports investments. Um, I barely know what Newcastle is, for example. I'm not a follower of uh, Premier League or soccer generally. But look, I think that um, I think Live Golf uh, came up with an entirely different kind of product, um, which was more fun, more exciting, and kind of shook up the world of golf. And it needed shaking up. I mean, you look at the demographics. The PGA Tour and its audience really skews, you know, white and older. Whereas Live Golf, uh, the audience was younger, uh, more diverse, and that was part of, I think, the strategy, deliberate strategy, and more fun. So instead of these long four-day events, you had a 54-hole, three-day shotgun start. It's faster. There's rock music. Yeah, I was going to say music. It's a, it's a festive event. Uh, I mean, it, it's a great. I mean, the, the PGA Tour... It turns out, you know what, Mo? Competition turns out it's a good thing. It is. Competition <laughs> is healthy. Yeah, so it yeah. changes things. Yeah. And it kind of shook and woke up the PGA Tour. And uh, I think the a lot of the players see the see the benefits of it, and you're exactly right. If somebody comes along and, and is prepared to pay more, uh, a larger share of what's at, at stake in the sport, uh, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's good for the players. Uh, it's good for the audience. Uh, so... You know, I, I think it was that in that one investment was a very exciting investment and really has changed the world of golf. It's funny how sometimes you don't know that you needed something until the next thing came along and made it better. Yes, you know? exactly. And, and, and the you take it for granted. So you, in this case, you had a, a monopolist. So the case was a, we say any trust in, in American law. Yeah. The rest of the world says competition. But basically what you have is a monopolist, the PGA Tour, no dispute. They monopolize the market in the U.S. for elite golf. Uh, and a lot of monopolists uh, 
you know, they're lazy. You know, innovation is not going to come from monopolists. They're interested in uh, everything's good, right? Things are going along fine. Why should they change? No need to change. And uh, then you had a new entrant come in, and suddenly that's a threat. That's a threat to the monopoly. And the problem there is it's okay to be a monopolist. It's not illegal to be a monopolist. Good on you if you're a monopolist. But if you're a monopolist, you can't preserve your monopoly against a new entrant, a new competitor, by taking any competitive actions. Like, for example, blackballing players who come to play for the new entrant and saying, you know, you're penalized now. You can't come back and you can't play on any PGA Tour. And there were other things that in the case were alleged to be to be anti-competitive. But yeah, I mean, the PGA Tour was fat and happy and saw no need to change. And now they have to change. And they eventually folded in agreeing to merge with... Uh... There was a... Uh, we weren't involved in the negotiation of that deal, but there was a memorandum of, memorandum of understanding that was signed up between the tour and Live Golf where they would explore some type of combination. Um, and I don't think that that has been finalized. I, I think the MOU contemplated that it there was a, 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 a date by which this was supposed to happen, and maybe the end of this last year, I'm not positive. And I think I read that that was, has been extended. So presumably discussions are still ongoing about what that will look like. Was it Jay Moynihan who, um, who had some comments to say about Saudi and PIF and Lim. Oh, yeah. And Monaghan was like, he was, uh, you know. Called us names. There is no place in American Gaul for Saudi money. That's what it was. Thank you. And then uh, no one has ever had to apologize for playing for the PGA Tour. These kind of sanctimonious comments. And then suddenly our money was good enough, I guess. Yeah, all of a sudden, uh, you know, he was the most contradictive person uh, yeah, of the, of the year, when you're when you're when you're, yeah. I mean, to name us names only to agree with us. I mean, I have more questions for you than than, than you might have answers for. <laughs> when you operate domestically in the U.S. and then you have to take your services abroad, is it like you know where you when you practice law, you do it one place and it's the same everywhere, or do you have to adjust? I know you came to Saudi, you opened uh, a, a practice over here where you have. Uh, there's a team of about 30 people today? Uh, we have uh, 10 lawyers. 10 lawyers. We have 10 lawyers in Riyadh, all Saudi lawyers. Now, every every country has its own legal system. Yeah. And they have their own bar, their own legal profession. They have their own credentials, the uh, credential that you have to have to be qualified to practice as a lawyer. I can't go to Saudi Arabia uh, and practice as a, as a Saudi lawyer. I can't do that in France or... Japan. Uh, I'm qualified to practice. I'm a member of the bar, and actually in the U.S. it's by state, so Mm. I'm a member of the bar in New York and the bar in California. I can go practice and do cases in other states. I have to get permission by the court, you know, if I want to show up in Colorado or wherever. That's routinely granted. But outside the U.S., you know, there's different legal uh, educations entirely. At our firm, we have 34 offices around the world, I think in 12 countries, and we pretty much everywhere have locally qualified lawyers. So in Riyadh, we have Saudi lawyers. In France, we have French lawyers. In London, we have UK qualified lawyers. Which is the way to do it. And uh, it's really kind of the only way to do it. The only way to do it. Yeah. Now, I mean, there are some types of proceedings that um, there are international, the so-called international arbitrations uh, where 
parties are decided, basically, you're not, parties have agreed to resolve their dispute, not within a state's legal system, but pursuant to some, uh, you know, arbitration system like the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce, or the London Court of International Arbitration. There's a number of these tribunals around the world. And there you don't necessarily have to be a member of the bar where that is located. You have to have a, a, a certain credential to be admitted as, a, as an arbitrator. And that tends to be a truly arbitration practice or an international practice. So when we're doing an international arbitration, our team may consist of lawyers from different countries with different backgrounds and qualifications. So what made you decide, let me take my talents or services to Saudi Arabia? You know, um, I first came to Saudi probably, I'm going to say six, seven years ago. Um, and I had uh, a client who had done business here who was telling me he thought it was a land of opportunity. Uh, and also the thing, I, re I remember him telling me that Saudis are the nicest people on earth, the nicest people he, he's ever met. And so I, I was, I came... I hope you found that to be true. Absolutely okay, true. Great. <laughs> no, absolutely true. Uh, gracious, you're famous uh, for your hospitality, and it's part of the culture, and, and I've, I've enjoyed all the friends that I've made here in the association. But um, as I came and met people and saw what was going on here and witnessed uh, the ambition and the energy and the projects, I, I really thought this is, some, this is an opportunity for us and something that we we want to be a part of. And usually when we go to a new country, a new jurisdiction, we're the first lawyers who are coming and saying, hey, we're here to do dispute work. There's a number of law firms here. And when we first opened in London, there was probably 150 American law firms that had offices in London. But they're all to do transactional work, capital markets work, M&A, fundraising, doing deals. There'll be a lot of those. There's a lot of those in Riyadh right now of foreign firms that you know want in on what's going on here but we offer something different and i thought there was you know the, the again maybe an unmet need for people who are specialists at dispute resolution um, not only uh, domestically but cross-border and international so not only matters like the live golf case or other types of cases that will involve multiple jurisdictions but domestic work as well. So our Saudi lawyers are in Saudi courts and are doing cases here that just involve Saudi parties and Saudi law. And as Saudi opens up, you know, taking on these projects, taking on these ventures, taking on these investments, the need for lawyers and practices are going to be more than maybe ever. You know, unfortunately... Um, Part and parcel of having this ambition and embarking on these huge projects um, means that there are going to be things that go sideways. Not every investment turns up roses. Um, some things won't work out. Uh, sometimes it's somebody else's fault. Sometimes people say it's your fault. Sometimes you then have a target on your back and you need, you know, there's need for uh, people like us who do what we do. So, I, I think that's uh, I think that's true. I think that comes with the territory. If you're successful and you're ambitious, and you're allocating a lot of money in a short period of time, there are going to be some things where you know there'll be disagreements, there'll be disputes. Mm -hmm. I was um, 
month ago, I was in London at the, two months ago, actually, at the World Tourism Market. And I didn't realize how big Neom was until I met some of the people involved there. From so many different verticals just under the Neom umbrella. Uh, that is something that is, when complete, going to be, I think, the new face of the country. The line intrigues me. It's as sci-fi as it gets. Um, I feel like I've seen it before, but I haven't. But I've seen it in movies. Um, have you kept a close eye on what's happening? Yeah, very much. Uh, all the giga projects generally, I mean, we've met the leaders of all of them. I've met them and, um, uh, look, among other things, one of the things, practice areas that we have is, uh, construction disputes, okay. litigation. Yeah. Uh, you can't have major projects without having disputes between the owner and the contractor. It's just inevitable. There'll be disagreements. You know, this wasn't within the contract. This is an additional expense. You didn't do this right. This isn't what the plans called for. There'll be disagreements and disputes. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of work for lawyers who practice in that area. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's partly why if I can, if I could be permitted to put in a plug next week at the Four Seasons in Riyadh, uh, we are doing a seminar on construction disputes, uh, we're having lawyers come in from our office in London, in addition to lawyers from Riyadh, and we've got about eight, 80 attendees signed up for it. We're really excited about that. Mm -hmm. And we'll be talking about how to avoid disputes, you know, what best practices between for dealing during the course of a project between the owner and the various contractors to try to avoid disputes, but recognize at the end of the day, for major projects like this, there are going to be disputes. How do you resolve them? How do you position yourself in advance to get the best possible result. Besides winning cases, John, what makes you happy in life? You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have five daughters. Um, Mashallah. Yeah. I'm a lucky man. Uh, they're married. They have children. Three of them live in LA. Uh, one lives in Boston. One lives in, uh, London. And that's really my, uh, you know, my legacy. Uh, someday, uh, the children and the grandchildren. So, uh, they make me really happy. Uh, I very much enjoy, uh, reading, uh, and learning. I would have told you that. <laughs> I enjoy learning. I I enjoy the arts. I enjoy film. We've talked a little bit about film. Uh, I collect some contemporary art. I enjoy that a lot, but I enjoy history and biography. I just enjoy learning generally. And also kind of a workout fanatic. I, I used to do a lot of triathlons. I've done the Hawaiian Ironman a couple of times. I haven't been in a starting line uh, in a number of years, but I still swim, bike, run, lift weights. And do. And I, I've reached an age where I've seen the benefits uh, of stretching and doing yoga. So I spend an hour or two uh, working out every day, and I really much en enjoy that. But I love my law practice. I love every aspect of it. I love litigating. I love the business of law. I love dealing with legal problems. I love meeting new people and learning about their businesses. Uh, so, I mean, my life is, I'm very fortunate. It's a very rich life. I think if you go into a courtroom after a triathlon, uh, good luck to the person you're going against. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, I actually do think, you know, among other things, a trial, a multi-day trial, that can be multi-week and multi-month, is an endurance contest. So... True. Being fit really, really matters. Mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. yeah. exactly. I'm sure you see uh, the effects on, on, on how the body and mind works after, you know, keeping, keeping fit mentally and how that transcends to, to your practice. Um, 
any mentors growing up? Not really. No? Not really. What pulled you into the space? You know, so especially on my mother's side, uh, there were a number of lawyers. Uh, and then I, uh, siblings, I had two siblings who were lawyers and a brother-in-law who was a lawyer. So, you know, I was kind of surrounded. I knew of law, kind of surrounded by lawyers. So kind of had in the back of my head, well, maybe that's something I can do. Mm -hmm. So it was on the radar from an early age. And I, you know, look, you uh, you may have gotten the sense I'm kind of a verbal person. If the world is divided into quants and verbal people, I, I'm much more in the latter than the former. Yeah. Um, how much longer do you see yourself practicing this? It still seems to be a passion of yours. Yeah, no, it's, I don't see an end date. You know, we all have end dates, of course, but, you know, I want to see, I see myself doing this as long as I possibly can. I have an uncle who was uh, a lawyer in California and was practicing until he passed away at the age of 105. He was practicing till then? Yeah. Going to courts? I don't know if he was going to courts. I mean, there were some reports that he would go into the office and just sleep on the couch. Uh, so I don't know exactly what he was doing, but he was going into the office. And you know, with these people, if they stopped earlier, they probably wouldn't survive. You hear stories of that, those who retire. So... Yeah. My, my dad was an airline executive for 30 years for Saudi Airlines. He retired at 60, passed away at 63. Mm. Okay, it didn't help that, that uh, you know, he was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. But work kept him going. Yeah, no, look, I get a physical every year. And, um, you know, I asked a longtime nurse who had been doing these physicals for 20, 30 years for my internist. Uh, and I said... You know, you, you, you've seen thousands of uh, patients, uh, you know, that have retired or, you know, they get older. You know, what, what, what sort of discriminators have you seen that kind of seems to make the difference uh, or markers for who does well as they get older and not so well? And she, without hesitation, said retirement. Wow. In general, uh, her experience, that's not good for people. You got to keep moving. What is it? Weak things break. You got to keep moving. Well, yeah, find something else. I mean, if you're not going to do the the day job you've had for thirty or forty years, find something else. It'll keep you busy. Two last questions before I let you go. I know you have something coming up at five. Worst advice you've ever gotten, and then we'll talk about the best advice that you've ever gotten that you can pass on to us. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? It's so broad, uh, huh? You know, I um, worst advice. Worst advice. I was, nothing's really coming to me, to be no. honest, Mo. No, no, I've, I appreciate the honesty. How about something that you would like to pass on words of advice that has perhaps helped you become the person you are today, the professional, the human being? Um, what's something that you can share with us that we can incorporate in our lives to live or strive to become successful? I would say don't stop learning. Never stop learning. Lifelong learner, huh? Yeah. There's always opportunities to learn, and that what what's makes the, your experiences rich. I mean, I love the fact that I've come to Saudi Arabia knowing nothing about Saudi and Saudi culture or its history or its art or its food uh, or its economy or you know all the things that we've been talking about. 
and uh, I've been able to learn a lot, but you multiply that by, I've had a similar experience in many other countries around the world. So to me, that's priceless. Well, thank you for, for many things, for sparing some time to me uh, and for the podcast, for coming in our to our country, investing in our country, opening up a business over here, employing a dozen Saudis, and I'm sure that number is going to grow. Um, you know, it's, it's typically those who don't visit Saudi who have a negative opinion of it, and then when they come, they see it for what it is, the way you do and the way you come a couple times a year. So I come more than a couple of times. More than a couple? Was that, was that, was, did, I un, did I downplay it? Um, but, but, but honestly, like, um, thank you for believing in us. Um, and um, I'm honored to have had this chat with you. No, I'd, uh, I appreciate you having me on your show. I mean, I know how successful and respected it is. So it's a great pleasure and honor for me to, to be on your show and speak with you. It means a great deal coming from you. Thanks a lot, John. All the best. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you.